0: Thank the eagles for being here tonight. (laughs) Sometimes you have to wait to see what God wants to do in you, with you, or through you when we are younger we're very impatient because we want God to do it now and sometimes he says no I'm going to build some patience in you and I'm going to make you trust me and uh, part of that is where we become intimate with God because we begin to talk to him about the things that matter to us, the things that are on our heart, the things that are important to us. And he either affirms that or he takes it away and gives us something better. Uh, I'm just gonna share a little personal note here at the beginning and then uh, I want us to look in a number of scriptures. You can turn to Second Peter if you want to, Second Peter chapter three. But uh, Friday, was a, Friday was a good day. Uh, for me anyway. Um, On Friday, I got a letter from a gentleman who has a uh, Christian book distribution company that has about 21,000 subscribers and he wants to talk about offering the Havner book on that uh, subscription list and then I got an email on Friday that it looks like there's a possibility that it will be in all the Lifeway uh, bookstores around the country and so Uh, Part of my prayer has always been that uh, I could be used of God to help keep Vance Havner's name alive because he is one of the most famous Southern Baptists of the 20th century and has been largely forgotten by our denomination. And uh, so one of the things I've prayed for is for God to open doors and to do some things. And uh, he would be embarrassed that anybody ever mentioned that, but he's dead so he can't argue with me, so... But that's one of those things that I had to wait 15 years to see become a reality. And in the middle of that, God taught me some things. He taught me some things about priorities and about importance and about patience and about trusting Him and taking Him at His word and believing that when He's promised me He's going to do something, He will in fact do it in His time, not necessarily in mine. So, saying all that, I want us to talk tonight about the basic concepts of spiritual intimacy. Now this is part one, we'll do part two, uh, the week after J.B. Collingsworth is here. But let me define for you spiritual intimacy. Spiritual intimacy is the life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the Holy Spirit through abiding in the Word. Spiritual intimacy is the life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the Holy Spirit through abiding in the Word. Now much of what we call Christianity today is actually a caricature of Christianity. And we have to use adjectives you know, we have to say, oh, well, they're a spirit-filled Christian, or they're an anointed Christian, or they're a committed Christian, or they're a, commissioned, a Christian who's committed to lordship. Or we go to the other side and we say, well, they're a backslidden Christian, or they're a carnal Christian, or they're a Christian that's out of fellowship. And because we've so watered down the word Christian and what it means, we have to come up with terms around it to define it. Vance Havner said that, had a great quote. He said, how many times have I heard upon arriving at a church, this will be a poor week for revival. On Monday night, the circus is coming to town. On Tuesday, the sons and daughters of I Will Arise are having a convention. On Thursday night, the garden club will meet to discuss African violets. The ball game is Friday night, and there's always television. Was there ever a good week for a revival? Must a church always take a back seat in favor of every sideshow that blows into town? Must we take the leftovers? Why shouldn't the other crowd do the worrying? Why shouldn't the Church of Jesus Christ, with the answer to the world's problems, make such an impact that the world, the flesh, and the devil would huddle in conversation saying, this will be a poor week for us? There's a revival in town. The reality is every church I've ever served and every church I've ever preached in, someone has made excuses for the crowd. Well, the crowd's down, you know, because we're in all-star games. And the crowd's down because we're in this. And the crowd's down because it rained. And the crowd's down because the crowd's down. And and our people don't come back, and they don't like to come back for meetings. And so preachers have to get up and beg and beat and argue and harass and do everything they can outside of threatening to take away your salvation to get people to come. You see, what it says to us is we have 16 million Southern Baptists. They're meeting in Phoenix right now. It's 110 there. Feels like it here. But what it says to us is we have 16 million Southern Baptists, but about 14 million of them aren't worth shooting because you can't get them to be committed to anything. Half of them we can't find. And yet they expect to be there for them every time they stump the toe or have an ingrown toenail. They want the church to be there, but they don't want to be at the church. They worship like there is no church. They worship like there is only a boat or a lake house or a vacation home or a golf course or whatever. And there's little commitment on the part of the believers in America which reveals how we lack intimacy because if we are intimate with God we will want to be where God is doing something the problem with intimacy is not what's going on outside the church the problem with intimacy is what's going on inside the so-called Christian the problem in the hindrance to revival is not the devil it's the excuses we make and the unwillingness on our part to take another step and to go further and to go deeper with God. And so I want to walk through a process tonight, and the first one is obvious. Intimacy is a process. There is no magic formula. There is no waving of the wand. There is no once-for-all experience, and I get it. Intimacy is a process, and, and, and that although we are saved in an event, the moment of salvation. There was a day, a moment when you and I passed from death unto life. Although that is true, that event leads to a process, a process of growing and developing in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you read the book of 2 Peter three times, Peter mentions the word diligence, which implies a process, something that we have to stick to. He talks about diligence and discipline. You see, we're not just to grow, we're to grow healthy and to be healthy in our walk. Now, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, you will see four beloved statements. Four times he uses the phrase beloved. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, Beloved, be mindful. Be mindful. Get your head in the game. Secondly, in verse 8, he says, Beloved, be not ignorant. You know, that's the largest group in the Southern Baptist Convention is the ignorant brethren. You'll get that in a little bit. I would not have you, ignorant brethren... I always love that sentence. I might get that written on my tombstone. I, I I better not go there. Verse 14, beloved, be diligent. Be diligent. Verse 17, beloved, beware. Be mindful, be not ignorant, be diligent, and beware. Now if you read 1 Peter, the theme of 1 Peter is grace. Now remember what verse 18 says. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of 1 Peter is grace. The theme of 2 Peter is knowledge. Grace and knowledge go together. They are not separated. They are not divided. They are together in God's economy. And what Peter is trying to help the church and believers to understand is if you're growing in grace, you're also growing in knowledge, and growth is a process. When we quit growing, we start dying. The moment our bodies quit growing, they in effect begin the process of dying. One of the great errors to me in the church is that we have people who have an evangelistic strategy, just get them saved. Just get them down the aisle and get them to make a decision. That's my problem with some of the so-called ministries that are around that will have six or 700 people saved in an event, where they tear up phone books and blow up water bottles. You can figure out who I'm talking about. And you go to that church a year later and say, how many of those people have you baptized and are active and involved in your church? And I can tell you one church in Atlanta, Georgia had 650 people walk the aisle and were baptized and they could not six months later find one. Not one that was actively involved in the church. I would say to you that those people are doubly damned to hell because they think they're saved because they walked an aisle and made a decision, but a decision for Christ is life changing. And you better not have an event that brings people in if you're not ready to train the babies in how to walk. It's not enough to birth babies. You have to be prepared to nurse them, to train them, to change them, and to grow them. In the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter talks in 2 Peter uh, 18 about the fact that these apostates and these false teachers are going to come and they're going to target young believers. They're going to try to infiltrate. And what he wants them to do is not just realize that you've taken a step, but you are now in the process of of a walk. It literally reads, Be constantly growing, don't ever stop growing. Always growing in your mind and in your heart. The things that I know that, that some people do to constantly grow. Warren Wearsby told me about some things he does to keep his mind sharp at 72 years of age, and, and it's phenomenal. I mean, he does things every day to keep his mind sharp that I can't even do. I, I mean, I just, when he tells me that, I go, Don't give me one. I, I can't do that. I, I'm not that smart. He says, don't ever stop growing. And what I think happens to us is we reach a certain point and we get comfortable and we say, well, that's it. That's all I want. I've got all of God I want. I'm going to get to heaven when I die. I may be saved as by fire, but at least I'll get there. But growth is not an elective. Growth is required curriculum in our Christian life. He says to grow in grace. Now, let me give you some references. Somebody told me earlier, I'm going too quick with my references, so I'm going to Go a little slower to help those of you who are right handed. (laughs) Grow in grace. First of all, we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We are saved by faith, by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, We are strengthened by grace. We are strengthened by grace. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 says, Grace enables us to endure suffering. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 and following. Grace is the motivation for giving ourselves to God. Colossians 3 16. Grace is the motivation to praise God. He says we're to grow in grace and in knowledge. Now it's easy for us to know more than we're living up to. And we need God's grace to help us grow in knowledge because you see, knowledge without grace can be mean. But grace without knowledge can be shallow. I I can have a lot of knowledge and not have much grace with it and be mean. I mean, there there are people in some churches and and you know they can tell you all things. I mean, the Pharisees were mean. They had a lot of knowledge, but they didn't have any grace. But grace without knowledge is shallow. It gets real sloppy. And people just say, oh, we just ought to just, just don't worry about anything. Don't worry about sin. Don't worry about consequences. Let's just, let's just show grace. Well, you don't show grace where God says that you show judgment. When God has says something is wrong, you don't say, well, let's not worry about it. You see, what God says, grace, yes, but don't ignore what God says you're supposed to do. There were people in the church at Corinth with the adultery and the immorality that was going on in the church and the drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. I'm sure there were people there saying, let's just not worry about it. After all, you know, people do crazy things. And that's why we don't have church discipline anymore. Because we have churches full of people who want to exercise grace but don't want to exercise the use of knowledge. And we're to grow in both. The grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, intimacy is based on obedience. James chapter 4 and verse 17. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now that verse alone, would wipe out most believers. The one who knows what is right to do and does not do it, it is sin. Now, I realize I'm speaking to the choir. Choir, and I'm speaking to the family, okay? Do you think anybody that was in church this morning knows somewhere in their background, in their raising, or what they've heard, I should be at church on Sunday night? You think anybody knows that, that comes just on Sunday morning? You know what? Every time they miss Sunday night, they're sinning against God. When they're just sitting around, watching television, whatever they're doing, because the scripture says to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So when the body assembles, I'm supposed to assemble with it, if I'm physically able to do so. So we have people that left church today and they left, they stood through church, they sang songs to God, they listened to a sermon, they maybe even took notes, and they walked out the door with no intention of ever coming back and having anything to do with tonight. If Jesus had announced He was going to be here tonight and reveal His plan for the second coming and tell us what the end of the Left Behind series is going to be like, they still wouldn't have come back. They just wouldn't have. Why? They've already got their plans. They've already made their plans and never included God in them. Now I want you to listen to this quote very carefully. Gary Galbranson said, One of the reasons people find it hard to be obedient to the commands of Christ is that they are uncomfortable taking orders from strangers. One of the reasons people find it hard To obey the commandments of Christ is because they are uncomfortable taking orders from strangers. You see, the opposite of ignorance in the spiritual realm is not knowledge. The opposite of ignorance is obedience. The Bible says to know is to do. The Bible teaches when you know something, you act on it. We're responsible. I am responsible, ladies and gentlemen, for every sermon I've ever heard, every Bible study I've ever sat in, every camp I've ever attended, every disciple now I've ever been a part of. I am responsible for every word spoken, whether I acted on it or not. You and I are responsible for what God allows us to hear, whether we're listening or not. I am responsible for everything I ever heard growing up when I wasn't paying attention. I'm responsible for every Bible conference that I've been in, every seminar I've heard, and everything that I've been... every tape I've listened to, every book I've read. I'm responsible to act on what I've heard. Now that makes me have to take it up a step. Because I just can't float through life and just pretend it doesn't matter... And, oh well, it requires something of me because, you see, if I don't do what God says, I haven't learned it, although I may have heard it. And intimacy is based on obedience. You see, God will forgive sin. He will not forgive excuses. We make excuses. Those don't hold up. God will forgive sin... He won't forgive making excuses. Aristotle said this, a great quote by a pagan. Wicked men obey from fear, good men from love. A.W. Tozer said, true faith commits us to obedience. Obedience is what you and I were made for. How do I have an intimate relationship with God? I obey what God says to me. Thirdly. Intimacy is an inside job. Turn to the book of Galatians. Intimacy is an inside job. Oh, it'd sure be easier if it was just external. If it was just keeping rules. Legalism is so much easier than walking by faith. But intimacy is an inside job, which means it's God working out of me what He's worked into me. Galatians 5, 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Which are? By the way, don't let anybody see you do this, but underline any of these that you know that so-called Christians do. Immorality. Immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery or witchcraft, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice what I said. So-called Christians. Now, what this is, Paul is listing the stuff that just rolls off the assembly line of our flesh. You don't have to try to do this. This is just what comes out of your sinful, fleshly nature. That's just what rolls off, and, and, and in verses 19 through 21, he's not writing to lost people, he's writing to Christians. Now somewhere by Galatians 5:19, let me have you write some references, because there are some similar lists that Paul gives in some other books. Romans 1:29 through32. Romans 1:29 through32. 1 Timothy 1:9 1, and 10. and Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. See, what he's telling us is is there's nothing in our flesh that can produce righteousness. Our flesh produces immorality and impurity and sensuality, anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy. That's what our flesh produces. And our flesh can never produce acts of righteousness. And even if we do good, it's with the wrong motive. Now, if you would look, he divides these sins of the flesh into three categories. Verses 19 and 21, he talks about sensual sins. Sensual sins. In verse 20, he talks about superstitious sins, witchcraft. In verses twenty, last part of verse 20 and verse 21, he talks about social sins. These are the basic categories of sin. Whatever we do falls into either sensual, superstitious, or social kinds of sins. And, and grace wants us to understand that God is trying to cut that system of thought out of us. He's trying to change the way we think. So he follows these works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you would, I want you to just do this. The deeds, verse 19, just underline the word deeds or works, whichever one it is in your translation. The deeds of the flesh or the works of the flesh. And then in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now people talk about the fruits of the Spirit. There's really just one fruit. It comes in nine flavors. Kind of like a roll of lifesavers. There are nine flavors and they're all nothing more or less than the life of Christ reproduced in us. And he compares these works of the flesh and this fruit of the Spirit. This internal transformation that takes place in us through the power of the Holy Spirit has an external manifestation. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. So if somebody calls themselves a Christian, says, oh, I'm a member of a church. And have you ever thought the fact how many people you could have led to Christ if they hadn't joined a church? I'm a member of a church. But what's the fruit in their life? What is the evidence of fruit in their life? You see, the, the legalist will get into, well, this is what I don't do. And the legalist doesn't smoke and doesn't chew and doesn't go with girls to do. Well, neither does a light pole, but... You know, The legalist has all his little rules of things he doesn't do. But the believer who is walking in intimacy with God has fruit that just kind of flows out of him. Love and joy and patience and peace and kindness. It's what he's doing as a result of who he is and what Christ has done inside of him. Now look at this contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. When I think of deeds or works, I think of a machine that turns out products. You do certain things and it makes certain products. You, you build a machine and that machine makes certain products. And the word deeds makes me think of this is the effort, the labor, the work that I do. This is what men do, what people do. Fruit is something that comes out of a life that's been planted inside the life. It's abiding, Jesus talked about it in John 15. In John 15 Verses 2 and 5, he said, you'd produce fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. My old nature cannot produce fruit. It can produce works of religion, but it cannot produce fruit. Only God can produce fruit. Number four, intimacy is cultivated I want to ask you to turn to the book of Exodus, and that's where we're going to be for the rest of the evening. Intimacy is cultivated. In reality, you and I are as spiritual as we want to be. We are moving in the direction we want to move in. We are taking the steps that we want to take, making the choices that we want to make, I remember when Mark Price was uh, playing for Georgia Tech, he was a member of our college group at Roswell Street, and I'd go see Mark play, and, and uh, Mark still, even though he's retired, uh, holds the all-time record for free throw percentages in the NBA, 12 years in the NBA. I think his free throw percentage was like 98%. And I have kids in my youth group say, man, I want to be a ball player like Mark Price. And said, no, you don't. Yeah, I do. No, you don't. You don't want to be a ball player like Mark Price. Yeah, I do. I really do, man. I want, I want to shoot hoops. I want to play in the NBA. I want to make big bucks. Well, by the way, first thing is the chances of a high school athlete playing in the NBA, he's got a better chance of being hit by a meteor than he does of playing in the NBA. So first thing, there's a big strike against him. But I said, no, you don't want to be like Mark Price because when everybody else has gone home, you don't want to stand at the free throw line and try to hit 100 free throws in a row and if you hit 70, you start over again. You don't want to discipline yourself that much. You don't want to have that kind of commitment. I bet somebody in this room last week when Heather was playing, oh man, I wish I could play the piano like Heather. You ever thought about taking a lesson? No. I just want God to kind of zap me with it. I just want to be driving down the road one day and all of a sudden my dashboard turns into a keyboard. I just want to kind of have the gift. You know, I sit there and listen to these guys play the guitar. Man, I wish I'd taken guitar lessons when I was growing up. I love to hear an acoustic guitar. I don't love it enough to go take a lesson. I don't love it enough to pick it up. I don't know an A from a G from a fret from anything else. I mean, I know how to kick one and break it. I'm not going to do it, Mark, so don't get upset. I know how to drop one. I can carry one, but I can't play one because I'm not committed to it. And I, I hear people say, oh, I wish I knew my Bible like that. Well, do you read it? Well, no, I don't have time. Well, how are you ever going to get to know a book if you don't read it? I wish I could pray like that. Well, do you pray on a daily basis? Well, no. No, my prayer life's kind of sporadic. Then it's never going to get there. You see, intimacy is cultivated. You have to work and you have to dig and you have to develop and you you have to discipline and you have to get around it and you have to say, this is something that's a priority for me. Why do I read as much as I read? Because I decided that's a choice I wanted to make. That's just a choice. I would choose to read. And I would choose to learn. And I hear people say, well, I want to be closer to God. But what they want, again, is that kind of mystical... They they want Tinkerbell to come down and put some pixie dust on top of them and they can go to some kind of Christian never-never land and just kind of live out a fantasy world. They don't really want to be close to God because there's too much that's got to change. Too many things that would have to be made right. So in the book of Exodus, I want to take you through four groups of people. Some who got close, but never got in. First of all, there's the crowd that will never get close to God. The crowd that will never get close to God. Look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. The crowd that will never get close to God. Exodus 19 and verse 11. And let them be ready for the third day... For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now he's talking about God's people. The children of God delivered from Egypt. The people with whom he was in covenant. But he said, you let them come, but you put a boundary around. They can't go but so far. Look at chapter 24. Chapter 24 and verse 2. We're at this same scene. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. That little phrase, come near, is used 125 times in the Old Testament in reference to what God and our relationship to God is supposed to be like. The term means to approach or to be near enough to touch. Moses could come near, but the people shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So what they're doing is they're worshiping at a distance. They're worshiping with a boundary. They are a part of God's economy. They're a part of God's plan. They all came out of Egypt. They all passed through the Red Sea. They're all headed toward the Promised Land, but they can't come near. They can't get close enough to touch. Why? I think it's because they had little appreciation for what God had done for them. I think this, was a, this is my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I, I think this crowd had the, well, God, what have you done for me lately syndrome? Uh, you have read the book of Exodus, haven't you? Uh, sent you a deliverer. His name's Moses. Well, Moses, you know, you gotta look at the mess you got us into. Gets them out of Egypt. woo boy. Oh, man, we're out of Egypt. Woo, this is great. Get to the Red Sea. Well, it's another mess you got us into. I tell you what, it would have been better to die in Egypt than stand right here by the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army run us over. God parts the Red Sea, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Parts the Red Sea, swallows up Pharaoh's army. They forgot that in a matter of days. You see, it's very easy to have experiences that are not life-changing. And to be in the presence of God and miss it. And this crowd had no burning desire to do the right thing. I, I think they got impressed with all the miracles. I, I, I think there were probably some, some Sunday school classes somewhere around there in the desert going, man, did you see it? When he threw that rod down on the ground, it turned into a snake, and then he picked it up and then it straightened out. That was cool, wasn't it? I wonder what he's going to do next week. What kind of entertainment we're we going to have next week? You know, maybe you know, maybe he'll have two rods and the snakes will fight each other or something. You know, maybe he'll juggle the the rods. Maybe he'll do something snazzy next week. Remember when Jesus was walking down the road and the woman with the issue of blood worked her way through the crowd. She had gone to all the doctors she was without hope and she reached and she said if I could just touch the hem of his garment I'll be made whole and in desperation she reached and she touched the hem, she just touched the tassels, the fringe on the garment that Jesus was wearing and Jesus had a crowd of people around him and he stopped and said who touched me? and the disciples being wise Men man said, Lord, are you dumb? What do you mean, who touched me? The crowd throngs you. I mean, this crowd's pushing and shoving and we're just trying to get through the crowd, Lord. How could you ask him? Well, he's not as bright as I, I'll tell you what, he is a carpenter's son. I think the hammer fell on his head. He's not very bright. Who touched you? And Jesus said, someone touch me for I perceive that power has gone out of me. You know what the crowd is? This crowd that's mentioned in Exodus 19? They're the crowd that come to church and throng God. They're pushing and shoving. They're positioning themselves. They're at church to be seen of men, or so the Sunday school teacher won't call them this week. And they're they're positioning, they're juggling, but they're thronging God, but They're not touching and finding power. Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Majority of people I think in churches are thronging Jesus not touching Him. And I think there are a lot of people in churches whose God is their appetite. They're just going to find out if there's a good show this week. you going to entertain me? you going to make me feel good? You're going to ring my bell? You're going to get me pumped up? I need a show. I need excitement. I need something that just jazzes me and gets me all excited and worked up. I'll tell you something folks, you can jump pews but if you don't walk with God you're never going to be intimate with Him. It's not how high a person jumps on Sunday. It's how straight they walk on Monday that says whether or not they're intimate with God. This is the first group. Second group is the crowd that will not sell out. Look at verse 9 of chapter 24. The crowd that will not sell out. Verse 9, chapter 24. Then Moses went up to Aaron, Nadab, and Behu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. The word Saul means to behold or to discern. They knew exactly where they were. They knew what was going on. And Moses had taken this group up and said, hey guys, let's go have a weekend retreat. And the speaker is going to be Jehovah God. And they saw him and they were aware of his presence and they ate and they drank. They were in his presence. They were aware of the divine presence. They were conscious of the nearness of God but they were not Changed. I mean, they ate in the presence of God. The God whose name they were scared to even pronounce. They, they, they had a fellowship supper in the presence of God, but this is the same group that in a short time is going to be raising money to build a golden calf. I think You can be in the middle of revival and miss it. I think a person can be in the middle of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God and never know it happened. I think it's possible for God to flow like an artesian well, fountain of living water, and one person in service get it. And somebody go out and say, well, that was boring. I didn't get anything out of that. Listen, folks, God goes where He's invited. God goes where He's wanted. God goes where there are willing hearts. And some folks are satisfied just to have a moment here and there, but they don't want to be intimate. I heard somebody say one time, some Christians have a lifelong goal to have a lifelong goal. And never arrive anywhere. But they're going to get there one day. You know, one day I'm going to be committed. <clears throat> when I was in youth ministry, I, I remember kids saying to me, you know, I just, I just got some things I want to do. Now. I'll get committed when I get off to college. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I knock yourself out. You go to the University of Georgia and you go to the University of Auburn. You go anywhere else you want to go. And if you're not walking with God when you get there, you're certainly not going to do it when you hit the campus fraternities and sororities is going to make sure you're going to be drunk as a skunk the first weekend and your mama ain't going to be there to get you out of bed and go to church. You know, I don't buy that lie. Well, you know, I just got, you know, I've got time and I've got freedom. And, you know, when I get married, I'll get serious about God, and then they get married, come to church, want the preacher to marry them, want God to bless marriage, and then they never show up. Well, when we have kids, we're going to get active. And before you know it, they're senior adults and they're still telling God what they're going to do one day. Can I give you a principle? If God is not worth your best years, don't you throw Him your last years and call yourself a Christian. If God's not worth the best that you've got, then don't give Him leftovers. Either give him the best or don't claim him. But don't give him just the crumbs of a life that's been wasted when you could have given him your best. Thirdly, there's a congregation of the committed. This is the remnant. Exodus 24 and verse 12, Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me and to the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, the remnant. Now, Have you noticed? It's gone from a million or so people who have come out to about 70 people who have gone up And now, God says, Moses, I'm about to give you the most significant thing I've ever put in the hands of man. My law, the tablets. And Joshua goes up with him. Now, Joshua wasn't even mentioned with the 70. He's so insignificant at this point. He's just a servant. He's just an errand boy. He's so insignificant, he doesn't even come up on the radar screen in this group of of 70. But now Moses and his servant Joshua went up to the mountain of God. Now go to chapter 33 and you'll find out why. In chapter 33 of Exodus, you'll see why God let Joshua go up with Moses as far as he did. Exodus 33 and verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, now remember this is after they've sinned and after God's, you know, threatened, He's going to just wipe them all out. All the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of His tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Here's why I think Joshua was included and why Joshua became the successor of Moses. Because he wanted it more. He knew there was something more. He didn't go inside that tent with Moses when he met with God, but he stayed around the tent after Moses met with God because he thought, you know, there might be just a little of the glory may fall over here on me. I may get a chance. I may see something. I may hear something. There was a holy dissatisfaction about Joshua. There was something within him that knew there's got to be more than just going and eating and drinking with God and then falling away and making a commitment and falling away and making a decision and not living up to it. There's got to be more to life than that. There's got to be more than rededicating your life every time you get in trouble. So he goes, and he would not depart from the tent. Can I give you a little secret? God can do a lot of things in your life if you'll just hang around. You will just hang around. Moses left. He's gone back. Joshua stays. I have a principle that I live by. Staff knows I do this. My kids know I do this. My wife knows I do this. I always get there early, and I always stay late. Somebody said to me one day, you're not very approachable. I said, you know, I'm one of the last five people to leave this church every Sunday night. I'm standing around. I'm just hanging out. You know, I don't know, Does there some kind of fence around me that I don't see? You know, is there, is there like, are there like electronic sensors and lasers that, you know, I'm just hanging around. That's how I met Billy Graham. That's how I met Cliff Barris. George Beverly Shea, all within five minutes. Everybody left. You know how preachers are. Preachers are like their members. When it's time for lunch, bless God, let's go. I mean, we got people that the minute it hits 12 o'clock, their their ankles are turned toward the exit doors. I mean, their their feet can go all the way backwards, getting ready to get out. I mean, at five till they're getting the purse, they're getting the kids, they're grabbing everything else, because we got to go to lunch. We've got to eat. God knows we need to eat. Look at us. We're drying up and blowing away. We've got to get out of here and we've got to go eat. And so we were in First Baptist Church Jackson. There were probably 3,000 people in the building. And a friend of mine and I said, well, you know, the restaurant's going to be so crowded. We've only got an hour off. Let's just skip lunch. And when you're in college, you can do that because you don't have any money anyway. So, you know, we just skipped lunch. And so we just went down to the front of the church and just kind of walked around. And out comes Billy Graham and Cliff Barris and Bev Shea. I still have the Bible that they signed that day. You know what? There are 3,000 people there that day. I heard people say, I wonder if Billy Graham's going to be here. I wonder wonder if Billy Graham's going to be here. You think he'll show up today? You think we'd ever get to meet him? Could we ever do a thing? You know what? You hang around, you might. You just might. When I go to the cove, Every year Norm says you can't sit on the front row. And I sit on the front row. That's not a good seat. Yes it is. I want to catch the spit when it falls off. And I sit right on the front under the speaker. I get there early. I stay late. I've had some great moments with some godly people by just carrying a package for them when they're leaving a meeting. Or offering to go get them a drink of water. The way I got Ron done to eat lunch with me one day is because I hung around. I think there were maybe five people left in the room that night. And Ron was there, and I took my moment. My wife, she, this drives her crazy. She's not here, so I can say this. It drives her crazy because you say, you've already talked to him, let's go. I said, well, I may want to talk to him again. Who knows, they may want to talk to me. I doubt it, but they may. Never know. But can I tell you something? You never meet anybody if you're the last one in and the first one out. Except yourself. If you want to meet somebody, you better get there early and you better stay late. I stood outside a stage door in New York two years ago so that my daughters could see a guy on Broadway who has a phenomenal voice. It was 17 degrees and it was a 30 mile an hour wind and I literally thought my face was cracking and falling off in pieces. I was so cold. I was praying for a day like this, where it's hot and muggy. I was about to die. thousand people in that show that night. There were six people that met the guy who starred in it. And we went to the stage door and stood by a dumpster filled with smelly trash and waited 40 minutes in the cold but I got a picture to prove it and they floated all the way back to the hotel was that worth it? yeah it was worth it for the joy that it brought to my daughters it was worth it now I begged that cab driver to stop the minute we got through with that I can tell you that but folks listen Rushing in and out, we never find the presence of God. God's not on our clock, He's not on our timetable, and we can't rush in and say, Okay, God, now, hit me. Let's go for it. Now, Lord, I got to be out of here at a certain time. Won't happen. Then the congregation of one Moses, Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Verse 15. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Now, did you see that? Moses waited six days, and God showed up and called him out on the seventh day. Oh, we're, we're too busy to wait. We're just too busy. And that's why God doesn't speak to us face to face like He did With Moses. That's why the glory of God doesn't come in our lives like it should because we're just trying to rush into the presence of God. And God wants us sometimes to wait to find out if we're serious, if we really want to be intimate with Him, or if we're just looking for another experience and another high. In another moment or do we really want God to do something in our lives that we never get over when the story of Christianity in China is written it will include the story of one Watchman Nee Watchman Nee was a Christian scholar, he's brilliant we all might not agree with his theology on certain things but he was a godly man Watchman Nee was a great writer, and when the Communists began to come into China, they encouraged Watchman Nee to leave because he would never be allowed to live. Watchman Nee decided to stay, and he stayed as the Communists overran China. The Communists were so afraid of Watchman Nee's popularity that they wouldn't kill him, but they imprisoned him because he continued to write. While he was in prison, he began to lead guards to Christ, much like the Apostle Paul did when the Romans were guarding him. And he would lead these guards to Christ, and he would continue to witness, and people would come in to see him, and he would talk to them, and he would teach them, and he would continue to write books and to write accounts of what God was showing him. The communists, knowing that to kill him would make him a martyr, took him out one day to the public square, and there at the public square they laid his arms on a chopping block and they took an axe and they cut his arms off at the elbow so that he could never write again. The story goes that when Watchman Nee's arms were cut off at the elbows that He lifted those bloody stumps up to God and He said, Thank You, Lord, for the marks of the cross. Lord, I offer up these bleeding limbs to You in praise. I wonder... Are we offering up anything to God in praise that would be worthy enough to be called a mark of the cross? Father, we ask You in Jesus' name to help us to see what it means to walk with You like we've never seen it before Lord it is easier to preach than it is to be intimate with you it is easier to serve in a church than it is to be intimate with you it is easier to teach than it is to be intimate with you it's easier to be a deacon to be a staff member to be a pastor than it is to be intimate with you. You are not impressed by our positions. But hunger for you gets your attention. Lord, this is a Sunday night and These folks are here because they want to be, not because they have to be. And yet, Father, don't let any of us fall into the trap of being in the crowd that eats and drinks in your presence and sees you, but walks away from the moment unchanged. Lord, I want to be like Joshua and Moses. I I want to have the ministry of hanging around. Because one day you're going to show up and I want to be there when you do. Lord, it took Moses 40 years on the backside of the desert to learn that he was nothing so that you could be everything for him. Lord, I feel like sometimes to develop this kind of relationship with you is so one sided. You give so much. You share so much. You love so much. And I do so little. Lord, I want to be available, I want to be able to move past the barriers. I want to be able to get beyond a momentary experience. And I want to know You. Lord, I feel like I'm far behind in where I should be having heard and seen all the things that I have. And I confess to you, Father, that too often I have squandered the blessings that you've given me. But Lord, I can do something about today and I can do something about tomorrow. My life can be different, my choices can be different, my heart can be more tender. I can be more yielded, so that whatever I have, I can offer it up to you as a mark of the cross and as a sacrifice of praise. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I just want to ask in these moments, Mark's just going to play quietly.